study on how to get more men to come to your church. You know, there are actually studies about stuff like that. And um, so here was the number one conclusion of how to get more men to come to your church. Have physical illustrations. Like a love bucket. So evidently, now that we have love buckets, more men are going to start coming to our church. Because evidently, we are Neanderthals, and all we have is a love bucket. Okay. We're just so simplistic. But um, So now, guys, if you're wanting to know how to reach your friends better, wear a love bucket around. And evidently, men will come to church. But, you know, I've thought about that a lot uh, since you mentioned that a few weeks ago. Uh, just of that sense of we, we are filled up and we give, but we can also take away from others. Uh, and that those, those commandments aren't just don't do certain things. But the flip side is do everything you can on the other side to bless someone's life and not to take from it. To enhance life and to love in those ways. Uh, so just children's sermons aren't just for kids. I hope you get that. Uh, today, yeah, I was glad that Jeff sort of set the table for us. Three hours in Haiti in a hot thing. You guys, I mean, you're kicking back in a nice, you know, comfortable place with comfy chairs. We're good to go till what? What do you think? One. One. <laughs> I was at a church, my very first church, I was a youth pastor, and there was a gentleman. He sat literally right over there where George Pippis is sitting. And at two minutes until 12, he stood up and he walked out because he was going to be in his car with the car running at noon. It didn't matter if the pastor was just beginning or just ending. He was up and he was gone. And so you knew what time it was when that gentleman in the church stood up. So we'll get you out of here in just a few minutes. But I, I want us to come together and to go back into considering this book of Haggai. Because Haggai is this uh, study that we've been looking at. At least we started it for a couple of weeks and I was gone last week. And now we're coming back to it. And it is a minor prophet talking about the people of Israel who were coming back into the land, uh, that they were going to rebuild the temple of God, that they were putting, uh, basically, it it was showing that the the desolation of the temple was really a fragmentation of the relationship between God and his people. That his presence had been broken there with them, and that it it was in distress. And that the theme of Haggai is restoring... God's presence into a central place in our lives. It's rebuilding. We don't have physical temples anymore, but it says that now we, God's people, are his temple and that he's here in us, dwelling in us. But the question has to be for us, is he central in your life? Is he preeminent in your life? Does he have a high place or just a place? Uh, Is he an add-on? Do you look at him as the God that transcends all things and takes over? When he comes in, guess what? There's not room for other stuff. When he takes up residence, he's not, by the way, a, a very good roommate. Because where the presence of God is, it kicks out everything else. And it says there's no place for self in the middle of that. There's no place for uh, my hopes, wants, and desires that to be central anymore. But I have to put them in a subordinate position to him. Now, the difficulty and danger with that is something that I was talking about a little bit when we were having our confession time. You may be like me, you may not be. I don't know for sure, but I know this. I like to be in charge. Ask Lisa how often I let her drive. I am not a good passenger. I drive. I don't like being in the passenger seat of anything, much less my own life. I want to run things. Now, I may know that I'm going to make a mistake, but at least I'm the one making the mistake. 
Now that sounds really humble in some way, but it's actually incredible arrogance and pride on my part. And the people of God were the same way. They were sent back for a task to go and to build this temple. And they ran into some opposition and they moved off and they said, oh, well, we can go do our own thing. And you remember, they were building their palaces. They were building their mansions. They were going about building their houses. And the Lord came and he said, now, wait a second. You're going to go do your thing while my house is in desolation. You're going to live for your glory. You're going to go and do all of this while you've forgotten about me. We need to get things back. And he said, consider your ways. Consider your heart. And he said, now get back to work. And the people said, oh, but there's all this opposition. He said, get back to work. For I'm with you. And it says at the end of chapter 1 that he stirred within the people's hearts. That he was there with them. And he stirred their hands and their hearts and strengthened them to get back to work. And it says they got back to work. Now we're picking up 23 days later from that. Haggai's ministry was about three months, at least the ministry that we know about. He probably ministered continually, but at least these three months are the only ones that we know about. And now we're going to pick up in chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you, and we're going to look here at these nine verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give shalom, peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to his reading and hearing of it. So now, in the few minutes we have together, we're going to look at these few brief things. And the first is this. There's a challenge. There's a massive challenge, and here is the massive challenge of the Christian life. You want to know what it is? The Christian life is all about change. The Christian life, from beginning to end, is all about change. So if you're a person who does, how many of you all just enjoy change? You just really like it. See, not many of you, a few of you. I evidently do. Lisa and I have moved to 13 different homes in 20 years of marriage. So we like change. I just sort of, I don't mind it. We move around a little bit, hoping that we don't do that anymore. Don't read into that uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, But change is part. Now, for some people, that drives them crazy. Change. Some of you have been in the same house for years. Some of you have been in the same house all of your lives. Uh, There are things like that. So this idea of change is a huge challenge to you. But here's the deal of the Christian life. God's plan is always to change you. To change you from where you were. And then by the power of his spirit in your life to make you more and more like his son. 
all the way through the course of your life into eternity. And what he will do in that is one of the things that he uses in the middle of that is change, upheaval, challenges, obstacles. That God wants to change us. He wants to move us and motivate us. Now the change that he's talking about here in this is the change of bringing him central to our lives. Of living a life that says, we just finished in in, uh, Galatians, saying we want to live a life that walks along the path for Christ. That basically we live a life where the people around us can see and we can see in our own lives that God is central to us. Now, is that an easy life to live? Absolutely not. Because around us are a lot of people who don't like that change. That people get uncomfortable when you say, I'm a Christian. That I live for Christ. That the thing about me that you need to know about everything, anything else is that I'm a Christian. And we have debates. We just went through an election time. Can a person's belief system, will it affect them when they're in a public office? The answer has to be yes. Especially if it's Christ. It has to affect everything that we do. If you're a student and you say that you love Jesus, it will affect the manner that you study. It will affect the manner in which you approach your studies and do your work at school. 60% of students surveyed say that they cheat using cell phones, smartphones, or other ways to do it. If you're a Christian and you have opportunity for that, it affects you in such a way that you would say, though I have the opportunity to do it and everybody else is getting away with it, I'm not going to. It affects how you study and do. It affects how you date in your life. It affects your relationships of how, as a child, an adult, whatever, it affects all of your relationships. So you do things differently. Why? To gain the favor of God? No, because you already have it. Because you already know that you have God's favor. Is that helping out a little bit? I'm losing my voice big time. Because you have his favor, it affects how you live. It affects everything you do. Does Christ being preeminent in your life affect the way that you drive? Should it? The way you play golf? The way you play bridge? The way you do anything that you do? Now, if that's the case, and that's a difficult change to have because that's not where we started from. Our starting point was this, me. I'm the center of my life. I do things how I want to do it. If you don't believe that you were born with a a character flaw that said, basically, I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, put two 18-month-olds in one room with one toy. And see if it's not by nature that they say, mine. That's mine. And you can't have it. I have two grown sons. They're not here, so I'm going to... Pick on them a little bit. They just won the state championship last night. It was an awesome celebration. It was within 30 minutes of the glow of it all. We're still on the field. And guess what? They got in an argument over a pair of slippers. Those are my slides. Well, you didn't take them. I brought them. Well, they're mine. Thank you for bringing them. But I don't have any shoes. I don't care if you don't have any shoes. Those are my slides. I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Really, guys? It's just shown up right there. And I was just sitting there going, this is ridiculous. You guys are so selfish. And we got in the van, and I was driving away, and I said, hey, where's that pack of gum that I had? There's one piece left. And Lisa goes, oh, I ate that. It's like, what? That was my gum. I bought that gum. We're just about us. <laughs> We're so selfish in the middle of it all. And God is saying in our lives, I want to change you and move you. I want to be central to it. And you go, okay, fine, I'll do that. But guess what you run into? I feel like I've just got to fly through this, and I hate it. But you run into opposition. 
The people were there in Israel and they're trying to build a temple and they're trying to build a temple in a city that doesn't have walls and that they're surrounded by people who hate them. And they've been given permission to build this temple by a pagan king who changes his mind whenever it is most convenient to him. So evidently it was beneficial for him for them to build the temple, but when and if he ever determined that it wasn't beneficial, he would say, no, stop building the temple. So they had opposition coming around them from all sides telling them, don't build the temple. And so for a long, long time they stopped building the temple. And then guess what else they had? They had opposition from within their own families. We talked about this. He says there, who among you saw this temple in its former glory? Is this not to you as of nothing? He basically says this pales in comparison, doesn't it? Solomon's temple was so great, and now look what you guys are doing. And so here were two things that really began to challenge them along the way towards change of having God central in their lives. One was fear, and one was discouragement. The other was discouragement. Fear and discouragement are two of the greatest enemies to you seeing change in your life for Christ. Fear of what other people are going to say about you, fear of others who are around you, and then discouragement in your own life that things don't quite look like you thought they would look. And so you stop. Now here, though, is the great encouragement that comes in the middle of it. God gives you an assurance. Guess what he says three times in here? Be courageous, be courageous, be courageous. Why does he say be courageous, be courageous? This is such a low-level question. I'm really not trying to trick you. Why do you think God said be courageous? You Bible students that you are, what do you think? Because they weren't courageous. Could it be possible that he was saying, be courageous because they were afraid? And he was there with them. And then his encouragement to that was, now be courageous. Buck up, son. Get back to task. I told you what to do. Now get at it. I'm so sick and tired of you falling off course, of getting off. Would you get back to work? Quit worrying about those people over there. Quit worrying about those mumblers in your midst. Get to it. Is that what he said? No. Be courageous. Be courageous. Be courageous. For great in your midst is the Lord of hosts. I am with you. And if I'm with you, you don't have to worry about that enemy. If I'm with you, you don't have to worry about the naysayers. If I am in your presence, if I am in you and dwelling in you, then you don't have anything to be afraid about. You have nothing to be discouraged on. You can keep running the race that I've laid out before you. You can keep going in that way because I promise you one thing more than anything else, and it's the best promise I can give you. It's the best thing that I could possibly find to give you, and that's me. I'm not going to change your enemies, and I'm not going to shut up the people in the church who are worrying about this, and I'm not going to do all that. I'm not worried about your enemies, and I'm not worried about all the other stuff going on. Here's what I can tell you. Look at me. Keep your eyes focused on me. When did Peter begin to sink? When he looked at the enemies. When he looked at the waves and he failed to keep looking at Christ. And that's with us. Christ is saying to us, I am in your midst. 
I'm with you in the middle of everything that's going on. And some of you have some huge things going on that make a lot of reasonable sense for you to quit living for Christ or to quit moving forward in that way. But I'll tell you this, here's God's answer. It's not to say that that doesn't matter. It's to say in the midst of that stuff, which is huge and scary and dangerous and may ultimately cost your life, I'm still with you. I'm right there with you. And look at the name that he gave himself, the Lord of hosts. We said this a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember it. Why is that important? Because guess who was hanging out around them? Armies. Would it have been enough for him to say, I'm the God of peace? Well, that would have been nice, but he wanted to tell them something. You see all those armies over there? You see all those folks over there? Look at my army. Elijah had a servant who said, God, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. There are all these enemies over there. And the prophet prayed for his servant and said, Lord, open his eyes that he can see. And what did the little servant see out on all the hills? All of the hosts of heaven. Saying, you don't have to be afraid to go to school and live for me because that school is filled with me. You don't have to be afraid uh, about going into your work or to your marriage or to your family or wherever I've placed you and with whatever circumstances come about because I want you to look around with spiritual eyes and see this. I am with you. And I'm greater than anybody who comes against you. So here, the challenge is we're always in change and there's fear and there's discouragement which come against us in the midst of that change. And for many of us, you know what we do? When fear and discouragement come, we just sit down. I've gone far enough. We feel better about ourselves if we've gone farther than the person next to us. There's a, tri- there's a group in India that every year there's a challenge of the young men and they stand and there's two villages that get together and they run, the young men run from one side of the river and they try to jump as far as they can and the one who jumps the farthest wins because they're ultimately trying to jump all the way across. You know what's interesting about that? The one who wins still failed. He just failed less than the rest of them. He didn't win anything. And sometimes we feel that way. Well, I jumped farther across, but we've still failed. And God's saying, I want to stir you up. I want to get you all going. And I want you to see that I'm going to be with you in the middle of this. And then the last thing that I want you to get is this. Not only is there a challenge, there's an assurance that he's with us, but there's a glory that what's coming is better than you ever could have hoped or dared or dreamed or imagined. He says here to this group of people who are building this temple with no walls around their city and they're doing it and they weren't artisans and they weren't masons, they weren't all of this stuff. They were just a group of people passionate about doing it and they'd been off task for about 14 years and they come back to it and they're starting to rebuild it and he says this, I look at what's going on from an eternal perspective that you can't see yet and here's what the eternal perspective is. You are pointing the world to me. And I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and I'm going to bring the silver and the gold and I'm going to bring everything down and I'm going to do something greater than you ever could have imagined through this. And he's saying that to you. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school and I want to say it in closing today to you. We don't see the right horizon most times. We see a low horizon. 
We see a lot of stuff around us. And it's not until we could possibly step above it all into eternity and outside of time to see how God has been orchestrating it all. You've heard the old illustration of when they are making a tapestry. Do you know where they begin to build the tapestry? It's from behind. And you never see the beauty of the tapestry when you're standing behind it. It's not until the artisans and the seamstresses and all of those artists then step out from behind the tapestry and look around and go, oh, there's the beauty of it. It was a great project at the school in the art department where the teacher had assigned each student one square and said, this is what you're supposed to draw. And no student really understood what it was. It was just a square where they didn't know what it was a beautiful Picasso. That when she took all of those squares that didn't make sense individually but put them together collectively, there was the beauty of a masterpiece in front of their eyes. And she said that the students looked at her and went, whoa. We couldn't see that coming together. God's doing something in your life. He's working. And he has some great things for you. Whether you see it or not, this isn't just a pep talk. This is actual biblical stuff. That he says there's a future glory for you which so far exceeds the current stress that you're facing. And that future glory is this. God's going to shake the heavens and the earth one day. He says, always live your life with an eternal perspective. Always live it, viewing heaven in mind. We'll end with this, and then we're going to close with a benediction and save that great song for next week. C.S. Lewis wrote, said, you can aim, basically, I'll paraphrase him, you can aim at several things. He said, if you aim at earth and not heaven, then you lose both earth and heaven. But if you aim at heaven, then you gain both earth and heaven. You know, there's a pejorative statement about Christians. Oh, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Ah, isn't that why Marx got really upset? He said, those Christians would say to the poor in Russia, just accept your fate because you get heaven thrown in one day. So just be poor. And it allowed them to live in their paneled houses and to abuse the poor. And Marx said, that's not right. That's why he said, heaven and religion is the opiate of the people. Well, I said there shouldn't be a heaven. See, the reality is this, and what we're learning from Haggai is this. If you really get it right, it's only when you're so heavenly minded that you're of any earthly good. If you live with the end in mind, if you live with the result in mind, the glory in mind, then you're of some good in this life to live this life well and to address it differently. So people come to you and they'll go, you're facing the same thing I'm facing. You have cancer. I have cancer. You've lost a loved one. I've lost a loved one. You're bankrupt. I'm bankrupt. You're struggling through high school. I'm struggling through high school. You're trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure it out. What is so distinctively different about you? Why do you have peace, shalom, in the middle of it when my life seems to be chaos? They've lobbed you a golf, a softball. They have teed it up high, folks. And what you need to respond, if you actually believe it, is to say, let me tell you the difference between me and you, and it has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has to do with the central part of my life, and that is that I believe in Jesus Christ. And I believe that my God has orchestrated everything for his good, his glory, and my good, and that I can trust him. And I don't know about cancer, and I don't know about bankruptcy, and I don't know about death, and I don't know about all that kind of stuff. I can't give you all the answers, but I can give you this. My God makes sense of it all. Because otherwise it's just chaos. 
He's saying, come. Fight against fear. Fight against discouragement. He's with you. And always live with the end in mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you. These aren't just historical narratives and simple stories about people building a building. It's a picture of our life that you've called us to build Christ in the middle of our life. That we are his temple where he dwells in us. And I pray that we would be about his business in our life and that we're going to face opposition and distraction. We're going to face storms. We're going to face enemies. But we need to remember a voice from heaven resounding that I'm with you always, even until the end of the earth, that I've overcome this world, that I am going to win for you every time and that I've already won it. And Father, in the middle of that, would we be strengthened and would we go out knowing the end before the beginning? Father, we praise you and thank you. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Would you stand now and receive the blessing of the Lord? You remember a benediction is just, it's been a good word given by a pastor or a priest or father, given to the people to say, this is the Lord's blessing to you. For some in the church, historically, if you're looking around, some people put their hands out to receive a blessing. So if you're looking around wondering what those odd people around you are doing, that's all it is. It's nothing that special. I looked over one time and there was a little kid right at the end of the benediction. He reached over and he said, I, he grabbed the blessing from the person next to him. You know, we still wrestle with that. You can just hold out and keep your own. You don't need to take somebody else's. But it's just a good word. And so now receive the blessing of the Lord Almighty. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance towards you and grant you his peace, his shalom, both now and forevermore. Amen.